Do that. Make their day. That's right. We're honest at that church. Amen. We want you to feel good, but we also don't want to lie in the house of the Lord. So we just, we give you the compliments that we can. Amen. I want you to get excited. Summertime's coming. There's a lot of uh, things happening, and obviously when summertime comes, we always have a lot of uh, uh, changes to schedules and things like that because of, of, of events and, and people here, not here, family vacations, things like that. But I want you to know that I'm working on a series leading up into the summer that you're not going to want to miss. It's some stuff that, that I have been getting... Uh, when my wife and I used to do, or we still do, but we used to ask for questions on Real Talk, which is on the first Wednesday of every month, and we accumulated some questions that we never asked or never answered, and so I'm, going to, I'm working on a sermon series leading up to the summer on some things that you probably have questions about, like, you know, does prayer really work, and why, and things like that, and, and, and what, happens, uh, what happens to faith when, when our faith feels low? Can God still do things? When it, are we standing in the way of, of, of miracles that we really want to see, but yet our faith is so low we don't know how to get it up? Things like that. So uh, get excited. I know sometimes when, when things start changing and, and the crowds get a little lower because people are out of town and different things, it's easy to just kind of get into that doldrum. But God's a God of excitement because he's always a God of newness and, and he's always doing a new thing. Amen? I've been excited about this word all week. Um, I apologize in advance. Uh, Flora has not had to keep up with me in a long time. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to start preaching this morning out of the book of Zechariah. Can you even sign Zechariah? I don't even know if you can. But I'm going to say his name a lot today. And that's one of them $7 words that I can't imagine is going to be easy for her to keep up with me. And i got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So i got to talk fast. So bless her heart. Y'all say an extra prayer for her as she tries to keep up with the pastor this morning. I'm going to begin in Zechariah chapter 2. If you uh, have your Bible and and you'd like to follow along, it's an Old Testament book. If you find Matthew, hang a left. If you go all the way to Genesis, I don't have time to wait on you. So... It'll be on the wall, you don't have to, or a screen in front of you, you don't have to have your own Bible, but if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to start in Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, it's not a book that you hear a lot of sermons preached out of, except when we go to conferences and places like that, people like to preach out of Zechariah because it's a book of prophetic visions, and that's not something that a lot of pastors are going to talk about on Sunday morning, but I promise you if you stick with me, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you something uh, because I'm not going to stay in Zechariah very long, I'm just laying a foundation there. Uh, the, the book of Zechariah has visions concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the temple, the walls. Everything had been torn down and leveled by the Babylons, and, and God is giving Zechariah a vision of rebuilding the city. Not only that, but he told them that Israel was going to become triumphant over all their enemies, and, and that by doing so, by rebuilding everything, that, that God was going to promote them and give them victory over their enemies. And in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When I looked again, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Where are you going? I asked. He replied, I am going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. 
Then the angel who was with me went to meet a second angel who was coming toward him. And the other angel said, Hurry and say to that young man, Jerusalem will someday be so full of people and livestock that there won't be any room enough for everyone. Many will live outside the city walls. Then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. That sounds good, doesn't it? He's prophesying the future prosperity of Jerusalem. And that sounds great. Look at your neighbor and say, sounds great. Uh Uh-huh. But great things don't always look great in the beginning. I'm already preaching. I don't want to lull you to sleep by being in Zechariah. I'm already preaching. Great things don't always look great when they start. As a matter of fact, in the fourth chapter, which is where we're going next, is recorded Zechariah's fifth vision. And what God was showing him there was that they were going to rebuild the temple. And he says, it's not going to be by might or by power, but by my spirit. Verse four, or Chapter 4, verse 1 says, The angel who had been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now, he asked. Remember, this is a vision. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps, with each having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. Then I asked the angel, what are these, my Lord? What do they mean? Don't you know, the angel asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him, and when Zerubbabel sets the final stone on the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it, may God bless it. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. Verse 10 is where I'm going to begin preaching. Do not despise these small beginnings. I'm going to say that again because I got no response from Pentecostal people. Do not despise these small beginnings. Why? Because the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. To see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. He said God gets excited when he sees somebody get started. It's not up to us to complete everything. All God asks is that we take, look what it says, the plumb line, the measuring line, and get it in our hand and we start the work. And then he who has begun a good work, my God in heaven, I'm, all, I'm already preaching. Here's what's happening, and this is what I'm going to frame my sermon around this morning. God just made a big promise, but it had a small start. God made a big promise, but it had a small start. And this morning we're going to use our imaginations a little bit. We're going to imagine heaven has a toolbox. And it looks just like any other toolbox that you have ever seen or had for yourself. There's a hammer in there. There's a bunch of screwdrivers and some pliers and some wrenches. Different things to help you do different jobs. But the one thing I want to focus on this morning is something I use as much as anything. Because my message this morning is about heaven's tape measure. I, I, I want to focus this morning on this tool in my hand. 
And I'm going to use a lot of scripture. We're going to talk about a lot of stories in the Bible. The first story we're going to talk about is how Israel one day went to God and said, God, even though you are our king, we'd like a different one. We'd like a king we can see. One that we can talk to. One that we can bring our petitions to. One that can meet our needs. So God, you've been a good king, but we'd like an earthly king. All our friends are doing it. How many of you know you're in trouble as a Christian when you want what the world has? Hmm? And, 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 and so they come to God and they say, hey, 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 we really want a king. And God talks to Samuel and, and eventually a man named Saul is selected to be Israel's king. You know the story, right? Now imagine with me in God's toolbox that he has a measuring tape. The Bible says Saul was tall, head and shoulders taller than everybody else in the kingdom. He's a big dude. How do you sign big dude? <laughs> Saul looked like a king. Listen, Saul looked like a king to everybody else. But Saul never felt like a king to himself. Let, 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 stay with me. I'm, I'm going to drop a lot of scripture on you this morning. 1 Samuel 15, 17. Listen to what Samuel tells Saul. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did not God make you the head of the tribes of Israel? Here's why that's important. God had promoted Saul beyond Saul's perception of himself. God didn't see things the way Saul saw things. Sometimes you'll find in life that your roles will change. And it is your responsibility to find out how to mentally catch up with the Role that you are now in. When you've never had a kid and then you have one, you better catch up. Your roles just change. And then you'll have one kid and think all kids are equal. You think the same things apply to all kids. And you'll have that second kid and you'll be like, where'd this come from? This was not like that. What I did with that kid, don't work with this kid. Where did this little alien come from? I think we had a mistake at the hospital. They gave me the wrong child. What happens is that you need to realize that as your life changes and maturity happens, your roles are going to change. So Saul looked like a king because he was, everybody say big. He was big, and big always looks better. Big always, well, some... Big always looks better. We're going to stick with vertical because I'm not going to get in trouble up here. Vertical big looks better. Horizontal big, another sermon for another time. Here's why this is important. The Bible says that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Typically in the Bible, every time somebody was from Benjamin, Benjamin was the smallest tribe. Everybody that came from Benjamin had a complex. They always felt like they were less than because they came out of this little tribe. Are you tracking with me? So, so, so the, reason I want you, the reason I want you to pay attention to Saul is because Saul had a small man's complex in a big man's body. And what happened was because of his complex on the inside, he never responded in life like a king. 
When trouble came to Saul, he overreacted. He was hasty. He, he never followed his spirit. He never followed his character. He, he went by what he could see, not by what he heard from God. He followed his senses. He didn't follow the spirit. And by the time you get to 1 Samuel 16, God is removing Saul as the king. Now, the Bible says that Samuel goes to tell Saul that you're no longer going to be the king. And this transition did not happen immediately, but it's already underway. Saul is on the way out, but it's going to take everybody else a little while to figure out that Saul is no longer the king. God tells Samuel, I'm done with Saul. Because big is not what I'm going to use. Big is not what I'm going to choose. Big is not what I'm going to anoint. Saul was, say big, but he wasn't going to use big. God sends Samuel down to Jesse's house. Jesse brings seven sons. Samuel says, the next king of Israel is one of your sons. Bring me your sons and I'm going to anoint the one that God shows me. So he brings seven sons and none of them worked. Samuel said, do it again. He's here somewhere. God told me he's here. Maybe I just didn't hear God. And all seven of them came through one more time. Say one more time. Uh-huh. But look what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Bible says in verse 6, when they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely, huh? Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his or his Facebook status. Oh, that's not in your version. Or his profile picture. Don't consider his appearance or how. Tall he is, how big he is. Don't look at that, for I have rejected him. I've already went with big. Big's not what I'm going to use this time. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and Shammah and the rest of his sons. But, the, but, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen these. And all of a sudden, after two trips, Samuel says, we're running out of off. Do you ever feel like that with God? Oh, sit there and look at me with that smug look on your face. The reason some of y'all are in your relationships you're in is because you felt like you was running out of off. You knew it wasn't the one God chose. Y'all not going to help me, are you? It's not the one God chose, but you started running out of options. And you started making bad... Y'all are so quiet. What are y'all mad about today? Y'all still hung over on Easter candy or what? You start making bad choices because you feel like you're running out of options. That's what's going on here. So he asked Jesse, verse 11, Are these all the sons you have? And Jesse said, There is still the youngest. Now... When you do a word search in the original Hebrew, that word youngest can also mean smallest. Mm -hmm. David was small. Saul was big. But the one God chose had nothing to do. Because did you catch what he said? The way you measure people 
is not how I measure people. The things that you look at is not what I look at. I look at the heart. So that's what jumps out at me is that God doesn't measure things the same way we do. Now, that's the Bible story. Let me share my story. Israel already stepped on it this morning in the pulpit I heard from backstage. We moved here 21 years ago. I was 27 years old when we moved here. You people have aged me a lot. I was 27 years old when I came here, which means I spent the first 27 years of my life living somewhere else, in another part of the world. It, it might as well be a foreign country. Where I, I lived in, you can't get there from here, West Virginia. Okay? And when I got here, some of the first people that we met, uh, who are no longer with us, warned me, well, you're not going to find much to do. This is a small town. There's not a lot of places to eat. There's not a lot of options to shop. This is just a small town. But see, I grew up in a small town. I mean a one-stop sign, no red light small town. I mean a small town where I can give you the whole tour of the whole place in seven minutes small town. I mean a no-store small town, a no-place-to-buy-gas Small town. Not only did you know everybody's name in our small town, you knew everybody's dog's name in the town I grew up in. We were so small. Now, when we moved here, we heard how small the area was. And then they took us to town. And I said, I thought you said this place was small. And they said, it is pretty small. I said, are you kidding me? There's a Walmart eight minutes from your house. No, no, you don't understand. Where we came from, Walmart was 45 minutes one way. You couldn't buy ice cream in the summer unless you was going to eat it on the way back home. Because it wouldn't survive the trip back to the house. I said, you've got a Walmart, you've got a Kroger, a McDonald's, and a Burger King. What is small about this place? But truthfully, what you have to understand to understand the rest of this message is... What you consider small is de determined by what you have experienced in life. Uh, uh, okay, so, so in the passage that I read to you, we have several indications that the reality is a lot of times what we call small is big to God. And the flip side is what we consider big. is small to God. What I've discovered that is a lot of the Bible is instructions for how we can see things the way God sees them. Use heaven's measuring tape instead of our own. In other words, we need to learn how to measure what we see by God's standards, not the ones we developed because of our history. I'm going to teach you a thing, okay? I, I thought I would ask an establishing question for you. What is your measuring device? Because there are things going on in your life right now, like the challenges you're facing. You all have them. Gifts that God has placed inside of you, you all have them. Uh, resources. I know you feel broke as a joke, but all of you have resources. 
I'm looking out. You all got clothes. You all got toothbrushes, whether you use them or not. I looked out in the parking lot. Nobody, nobody rode a skateboard here. You've all got means. Now, you may struggle. I'm not saying you're not going to struggle, but what I'm saying is how you see your struggle is determined by what you use to measure with. So what is it that causes you to label things small or big or not enough or maybe too much? And let me ask this question. Why do we always consider small to be a problem? Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. Jesus said, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in. In other words, you'll never see the big if you don't do little right. So if you start small and use what God has given you wisely and you invest it wisely, whether it's money or your energy or your time or your smile or your hugs or your friendliness, if you invest it, whatever it is, if you invest it wisely, God will multiply it and then give it back to you. But large things that God has for you don't start large. They start small because God doesn't want to overwhelm you, so He gives you little before He shows. I'm preaching better than you're shouting this morning, so I'm just going to have to accept it and move on. Listen, I want to spend the rest of the time I have with you showing you that your problem isn't small because small is not your problem. My sermon title this morning is Your Problem Isn't Small. And when I said that, some of you probably thought, that's right, I got a big problem. But that's not the reference. I'm, I'm saying small is not your problem. Your problem is how you see small. What lens you're looking through. What do you use to measure with? Look at what the Bible says about Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath. Stop right there. Who was born in Bethlehem? Say David. Who else was born in Bethlehem? Jesus, you, Bethlehem, though you are small among all the clans of Judah, you are small. But the biggest prize, the biggest present, the biggest gift is going to be born out of you even though you are small. In, in response to and in comparison to all the other clans of Judah, you, the small one, are going to have the Savior of the world born out of you. It's like the Lord would look down on Promise of Victory some Sunday morning and say, you, the small one, are the one I want to use. You, the one that didn't graduate high school and had to get a GED. You, the one that was abused and neglected. You, the one that went through that nasty divorce. You that filed bankruptcy two different times. You, the one that feels like you can't do anything. You, the one that fights uh, issues that's not mentionable from this stage. You are the one I'm going to use because I don't see things the way everybody else does. I don't measure people how you measure them. So what do we see in the principle that's working here? God brings greatness out of things we think are small. But I need to tell you before I move on, 
There is a standard. It's heaven's tape measure. It's not ours. It's not Hollywood's. It's not Washington's. It's heaven's. And there is a standard. And when you look through the eyes of faith, you're supposed to see things the way God sees things. And you're supposed to look at it the way He looks at it, no matter what you're looking at that's going on around you. Somebody say amen. An inch is an inch. I don't care where you are. It's a standard. Yeah, tell your neighbor, it's a standard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which means an inch is an inch inside, and it's an inch on the roof. Hello? It's an inch whether I'm using this or I'm using this. Because it's a standard. It doesn't change whether it's sun shining or raining. It, it doesn't matter whether you're in a mansion or a crack house. An inch will always be an inch. If you don't like that your waist is bigger inches than it was last summer, you can't just keep putting them pants on and acting like it didn't happen. Because it's a standard. 44 don't fit into 36. I'm not a math major, but... The another sermon for another time. I made you mad at me now. It all comes down to what you're using to measure what you see. Can I help you? At some point on Sunday afternoon, I send a text to Glenn. I hate to do it because I know I'm always how I'm going to feel. Can I just be transparent with you? You're mad at me and you're real quiet, so I'm just going to preach about me the rest of the time. Because this is my problem, not yours. On Sunday afternoon, I will send a text to Glenn and I'll ask him what the attendance was. And now I'll tell my wife, we were down this week. And then I'll start feeling depressed and typing out my resignation. Because we were down. Uh huh. The number was smaller than it was last week. So I feel like I'm a failure and I probably should let somebody else lead the church. But then I start remembering what am I using to measure with? Because what standard am I using to say that we were down? Because the number he texted me tells me that we were down from last week. But last week is not 2001. And if I can remember 2001, we started with 13 people. And if I will go back and start being a cheerleader for the 47 Dennis Ridge Road version of me, I will remind myself... This looks pretty this looks pretty good. I mean, this is pretty awesome. So what am I using to measure up, down, good, bad, big, small? What am I using to measure? I need to know how to use a different form of measurement. 
Because I have to start thinking. We've got people on vacation. We've got Bill and Tina Crossley. He's been fighting shingles and can't get to church. And they're having to watch online. We, we, we pray for him to get well so he can get back in the building. we got other people that's, that's, that's got family in town and they're not here. And, and, and Smitty's out preaching today. And, and so when I start thinking about it, I'm like, what am I using to determine my up and down? And if I use the wrong lens. If I use the wrong thing to measure with, I will constantly talk myself out of the blessing that God has in front of me. Do, do you ever have to do that to yourself? Like, like you have to go back and frame a reference that, that was a period of time when you weren't so jaded about everything? Like, like, like you, do you have to go back and be a cheerleader for yourself? Do you, do you have to go, ever have to go back and remind yourself, you know I was stressed about this before, but now I look back and think, what was I so worried about? God was with me. And if God was with me then, God will be with me now. Do you ever have to do that to yourself? What, whatever the devil tries to tell you, what you have is not enough. What, that's nothing. That's just a little thing. That, that's just insignificant. When in reality... What you call small today, you thought was impossible one day. What I'm looking at now and seeing all these empty spaces and thinking is small. At one point in my ministry, I thought this all was impossible. So in order for me to even be here and judge this as small is a miracle. And I have to remind myself. That we didn't used to have this. It's amazing what we overlook in ourselves, but it's even more amazing what we overlook in the lives of other people all the time. You know what's weird? Sometimes people have no idea how big the burden is that you carry. Your burden seems small because they can't see past how big theirs is. You probably don't know that because you've never been in my position. But if you've ever pastored a church, you know that everybody thinks their problem is the world's only and largest problem. Because that's all they can see. There are three tendencies we all have. Number one, we have a tendency to romanticize the past. Oh yes, we do. When you were in it, you couldn't wait to get out of it. Then after it's over, you look back, and it's like a Norman Rockwell painting. And you fantasize and romanticize about how great the good old days were. The truth is, the truth is, the past was not as bad as you think it was, nor was it as good as you think it is. So that's the first tendency we have. The second one we have is to dramatize uh, dramatize the present. So we romanticize the past. We dramatize the present. Oh, yes. Oh, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Oh! Oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. It's never been this bad before. Nobody ever says anything nice to me. That's a lie. Seven people told you they's glad to see you, but you chose to focus on the one that walked by you and did not give you their time. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is dramatizing. That is being overgeneralizing. They always do this. No, they don't. You're being dramatic. They never do that. That's not true. Sometimes they do. That's just making what is in front of you bigger than it really is. Uh, uh, that, that's making your problem that you are living with bigger. I don't think you should look at your husband or wife. I think you should just keep your focus right here on me. I'm trying to give you some marriage counseling in real time. That is making the problem that you live with larger than it really is. I'm going to prove that to you in a few minutes. The third tendency we have is we fantasize the future. We just make up a whole universe of problems that's going to be there when we get there. We, do, we just dream up. Well, what if this happens and then that happens and I'll have to quit my job and then we'll have to move down to Mexico because the authorities will be looking for us and we're going to... You heard a rumor at work that they're going to start laying off. Next thing you know, you're in Mexico? What is wrong with you? You just make up this whole fictional world out of whole cloth that didn't exist two seconds ago. Or you make up this Disneyland where everything is gumdrops. And your future is going to be blessing on blessing on blessing. And you don't have to make any plans. And you don't have to make any sacrifices. And you don't have to change nothing. Both of them. <laughs> we all like that version. Trust me. We all like that version. But from firsthand experience, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking to you about something I've read in a book. I'm telling you what I have lived in in my own land of make-believe. I have done this very thing over and over and over again. I know what it's like to dread the future. I know what it's like to come to church and be like, that person has to meet with me. They're probably all going to quit the church, and then if they quit, they're going to quit, and they're going to take them with them, and then this person will probably start a church, and then we're going to have a church war going on. Where'd all that come from? They wanted to meet with me because they wanted to put a check in my hand, and I already got them planting a church somewhere. Like in my mind, I've got Todd and Glenn going over there like hit men. They're going to drag people out and hurt them. Pray for them after they hurt them, but they're going to hurt them first just to remind them what we're about. <laughs> Where did all that come from? It's over-dramatizing and it's fantasizing. So I, what I've learned is sometimes the smaller it is, the bigger it becomes. And the bigger it is, the smaller it'll be. We have to learn how to measure what we're looking at through heaven's tape measure because we have a tendency to make big what God calls small. Make small what God calls big. Sometimes God don't show you the answer in the first thing you see. You have to have some patience. Samuel went looking for the next king and the first brother, Eliab, was just like Saul. Big, tall. And if Samuel would have said, that's my boy, he would have anointed him, went home, and the whole nation of Israel would have been in trouble because he would have assumed that bigger is better. I've assumed that my whole life. I told you, I'm just going to talk about myself because I've made you mad at me. I have assumed my whole life that bigger is better. And I'm just now at this stage of my life realizing sometimes you've got to learn how to not despise small things. 
Because let me give you some examples. There are people either in this room or outside this room or watching online that cannot receive this message that I'm preaching because I wore pants with a hole in it. And something that small is going to keep them from receiving a big deliverance that the Word would bring to them. Uh-huh. I, I, had, I, had somebody, I had somebody quit the church one time because a chair got moved. No, I'm serious. I ain't making this up. I had somebody quit the church because a chair got moved. Not their chair. Not, not like we took their chair out in the parking lot and said, you have to sit out here now. You're thinking too much about this. They got offended over the location of a chair they didn't sit in. They didn't pay for it. They just didn't like it got moved. That's too much changing going on. Has somebody quit the church one time because the clerk didn't get them their year-end giving paper on time? I hope she never makes a mistake in anybody else's world. Because... Jesus talks about it in this form. He says, you strain at gnats and you gag camels. In other words, you make mountains out of molehills. You take the small things that are insignificant and blow them out of proportion. Oh, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that does this. I've spent my whole life blowing things out of proportion. I have spent my entire marriage trying to make for blowing small things out of proportion. I have a tendency to make big things that are really, uh, it's just me, right? Well, uh, let me put it to you like this then. We look at somebody else going through something and we measure it through our circumstances. And we start sizing them up based on what? we use to measure and we say stupid stuff like why is that so hard for you why why can't you get past that i i went through that and i didn't act like you i i, I, I we start sizing them up Based on what we use to measure stuff. We look, we look and say, if I was in your condition, I would. If them was my kid. And we measure people up by our standard. Instead of using heaven's tape measure. And we start looking at other people. But can I remind you that some of the biggest messages are delivered in small packages. You don't believe me. Take a look on the wall. There are some things that you can say that will make your whole world shift. Saying I do changes your whole life. Coming out of that delivery room saying it's a boy changes everything. How's everything going? Mom died. 
And you don't have to say nothing else. Two words. Two words expresses everything that that other person needs to know about how you're doing. How your whole world is framed can be framed in two, two words. How's everything? Mom died. It frames the entire world. How about you come out of the oncologist's office and you tell somebody, cancer free. That frames it in another way, doesn't it? That makes everybody that hears that jubilant and excited. Yeah, that makes your faith rise, right? When you hear those words come out of somebody else's mouth, it makes your faith rise. Or how about, I went to Promise of Victory Sunday and I got saved. (laughs) In other words, church, you don't have to say a lot to say a lot. I'll give you two more that's not going to be on the wall because they're two that will make the difference between where you end up from where you are. I quit. I quit does something on the inside of you that makes you Stop fighting. Or three little words, I love you. And when you say those over your children, you'll fight every devil in hell to see them free. When you say them to another person, you will forget the whole world exists because now that you feel like that's who God has put in your life and you're going to do whatever it takes to make that thing work. When you say I love you as a Christian to another Christian, it means I will fight spiritual battles on your behalf because I love you too much to watch you die in this. I will climb up the mountain and help you as long as you will fight. I will stand by. You will never fight alone as long as you are swinging. I'll be there to swing with you because we are knit together. Jonathan and David loved each other and their souls were knit together. When you say these little phrases, they make a world of difference. So your problem isn't small. It's how you measure small. So in other words, don't ever diminish somebody else's pain. Ever. What they're going through may be big to them. It just looks small from where you are. That single mother trying to wrangle all them kids and get them. Listen, some of you got kids that if I was you, I'd be in jail or they'd be dead. Okay? I'll tell you. But I got a kid who probably would have done the same thing to you. It's all in how you measure things. And what I'm trying to tell you is, you a single mom wrangling three little ones and trying to get them to the house of God, I ain't judging you. You come in with your hair all a mess. You come in with them kids with two different color socks on their feet. You just get here. I don't care what it took to get you and them here. Just get here. I ain't going to try to judge you and say, well, she should have got herself ready. No, she has fought for three hours just to get that kid with peanut butter in their hair to get to the house. Have you ever met one of these people, talk about small and large, ever met one of these people that has to top everything you say? 
Like, like you say, oh, my, my child is taking piano lessons and they're getting pretty good and they're going to have a recital. Oh, yeah, well, my little Johnny won the contest uh, for being the sharpest, uh, the fastest pencil sharpener in their class. You bought a new car, they're going to go to the moon. Like, it's always something they have to, or maybe, maybe all you married folks, all you married folks, maybe you've played this stupid game that me and my wife used to play. My day was worse than yours. Oh, yeah, we used to like that game because we'd get together at the end of the day and talk, oh, I really went through it today. I had this and I had this and I had it. Yeah, well, that don't match my day. And if my, if my feet hurt, her back had to hurt and it had to be higher level than my foot pain. Anybody ever have that, uh, that contest about who's hurting the worst? We're supposed to be people of faith, and all we get together is share notes about how much pain we at. We're trying to win a contest about how much pain we're in. What a stupid game to play. And we did it for the longest time. I just tapped out and said, you win. Oh, you're going through this? Well, I went through that. And when I went through it, I didn't act like you. But we do that mentally, whether we say it verbally or not. We kind of make what other people are going through seem because what we're going through is always. Uh-huh. And, and, and something we don't realize is that we're only seeing it from our tape measure. Okay? So we look at them and we say, why is that so hard for them? Why don't they just quit? But what you have to realize is there is a history behind why they act the way they do. Something knocks them off balance and you're like, well, I went through that and I didn't act like it at all. That's a small thing. But you don't know what it took to knock them off balance and you don't know what they went through before it happened to them. See, this is why some of us are terrible. I say us because I'm the world's champion. I'm terrible at taking compliments. Am I the only one? You don't want to know why? I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to give you a little counseling. Because when you do something, when you do something, when I do something, I minimize it. I make it small. And there's a reason I do that. Because I see myself. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody. He was selected by God to be the king, but he never saw himself as a king. He saw himself from the tribe of Benjamin. He was... And I see myself. I came from nothing. I was raised from people that weren't anything. And they taught me, if you never expect anything, you'll never be disappointed. So I've spent my whole life fighting the reality that sometimes I can have good things. Sometimes I can preach a good sermon. Every sermon I preach is not the worst sermon that's ever been preached. But I battle that. And so in my mind, I make myself small because I don't want you to insult me. I don't want you to tell me that what you heard me preach was the worst sermon ever. So I, in my mind, have my, set, my shields up before you ever get a chance to tell me how you feel about it. I've already degraded it and made it small. So when you come along and try to compliment me, I don't have the scaffolding emotionally to hold on to those compliments. And I beat you to the punch, and I knock myself around before I give you a chance to do it. But there's a problem with this. And I've been fussing at my wife for this. Because 
The Bible says Christ is in you. The hope of glory. And if you insult you, you're insulting the entirety of you. And that means he who lives inside of you, you're insulting the manufacturer. And you shouldn't do that. Because God called you fearfully and wonderfully made. He made you in his image and in his likeness. And you should not insult what God has called blessed. Your problem isn't small, it's how you see small. Saul was so insecure, he never thought of himself as a king. So when David comes out to fight Goliath, David said, is there not a cause? What are all you jokers doing? Go down there and beat this giant. I'll go do it. Saul said, you can't, you're too. That's the same thing his brother Eliab, his big tall brother, had said to him. When he showed up on the battlefield, he says, what are you doing here, little brother? What are you doing? You brought me some crackers and cheese? Go back home to daddy and watch the sheep. Your two. Uh-huh. Because they were measuring David by what they could see. My kids will start reminiscing. Especially Alyssa because she's getting old. My kids will start reminiscing and they'll start talking about small things I did for them that I don't even remember. Until they mention it. She'll say, you remember when you took me to that practice? You remember when you took me to that library? uh, Do you remember when you stood out in the rain and watched me run track? And I didn't remember it until she brings it back up. And then, But something I thought was stuck with. And sometimes those words you think are small will also get embedded in them. Hello. But they're getting it. So the words we speak, the good ones... And the bad ones. Sometimes you will say something to somebody and you'll think nothing of them. You'll say something like, oh, that looks so good on you. You just made their whole day. You just made their whole day. Oh, your hair looks so good. You just made their whole day. You don't know it. It was something that you just said. But it was big to them. And vice versa. You can say something out of anger that will stick in somebody's spirit for decades. So don't ever think that just because you think it's small, that it's small to God and it's small to other people. i I got to move on. If small is your problem, it's because you're measuring wrong. When Israel was getting ready to come into the promised land, they sent out 12 spies to do what? Measure the promised land. They wanted to see what kind of fruit grew there. They wanted to see how big the place was, how big the people were. And they came back with the report. And here's the report. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 33. What did it say? We saw giants there. They're big. They're big. We saw them. And we measured them by our measuring device. And we said, next to them we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. Do you think they went down there and took a pole? Do you think they sent, uh, remember in third grade when you would send them letters across the class and say, do you like me? Check yes or no. Did y'all do that too? Kids just text today. But remember old school, we had to write with hieroglyphics. Remember that? And, and send a letter that says yes or no. And, and to check, do you think they sent some letters down there to the sons of Anak and says, do you think we're grasshoppers? Check yes or no. No. They made up an assumption 
based on what they used to measure. They said these people are too... When I do marriage counseling, premarital counseling, I tell people, keep your fights at home. Don't you run home and tell mama that you and him got in a fight. Because you and him will be over it by Tuesday. She's going to hate him on her deathbed. Because you her baby. So keep that fight in the house. I'm, I was counseling a young married couple. They're in this room today. I was counseling a young married couple one time. And I let them talk for about 30 minutes about all their problems. And all their problems came back to the same thing. Money, 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 money. There was a chair between them, and I laid a $20 bill between them, and I said, that's an awful small thing to cause such a big problem. But that's what we do to each other. We take small and make it large. And when they looked at these giants, they said they are too big. Caleb and Joshua came back because they didn't use their measuring device. They used heaven's measuring device. And what Caleb and Joshua said was they didn't focus on the giants. They said, did you see the size of the pomegranates and the grapes? Did you see how big the fruit was? Did you see how big the blessing was? Did you see how big our God is? Surely we can go up and take it today. Just look at what God gave us. It depends on what you use to look at everything through. Look at your neighbor and say, let's use heavens. Let's use heavens measuring tape. That's what we're going to do the rest of the time we're together. James says your tongue is a small thing, but it affects big things. Like the rudder of a ship moves a ship. Like a bit in a horse's mouth moves a 3,000-pound horse. He said, your tongue is a small thing that affects big things. Uh-huh. So, that's why preaching is so hard. Because I feel like Moses sometimes. Moses coming down off the mountain... He's got two tablets, Ten Commandments. And before he ever got down to the bottom, he looked down and the whole church was backslid. Ain't nobody got no clothes on, dancing around a gold calf. Moses looks down at that tablet and says, Thou shalt not have any of the gods before me. Check. Thou shalt not worship any other God. Check. Covet. Check. He looked down at what they were doing and what he was bringing them. And he destroys the tablets because he broke what they were already breaking. Sometimes preaching is so hard because I preach my guts out on Sunday and by Tuesday I see your Facebook. And you already broke all the commandments I preached into you on Sunday. And for you it's a small thing that I preached to you but to me it was a sacrifice. 
Do you understand that what you go through is bigger to you than what it is to everybody else? So we need Jesus to teach us how to measure. We, we need Jesus to teach us how to measure. I'm going to go to John chapter 6. We need Jesus to teach us how to measure. We need Jesus to teach us how to measure. If small as your problem is because you're measuring wrong. I, I, I need Jesus to teach me how to measure. So in John chapter 6 and verse 5. Jesus has preached so long. They have followed him out into the middle of nowhere. It's Sunday. Chick-fil-A's closed. And the disciples come in verse 5 and say, Jesus, we got to feed all these people. And Jesus looked up and saw a, what kind of crowd? What, what kind of crowd? Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a big crowd, Jesus. It, it's a big crowd. We need to feed this big crowd. He said to Philip, where should we buy bread for all these people? We got a big problem. And sometimes all I ever do is measure my problems by my experience. What worked before, what didn't work before. I tried that before. I prayed before and nothing happened. So I'm measuring this problem by my experience. I prayed, I fasted, I've done all, I did that before. So I start measuring, and all I see is how big this problem is. He saw a great crowd. He asked Philip, I wish he'd asked Peter. I like to, I, I like to just dream about visioneer about what Peter would have said. But it's probably not something that's appropriate for church. Peter didn't have the Holy Ghost yet. But he asked Philip, he says, Philip, where can we go to buy bread? And Philip measured the situation through his experience and he said if we had a year's wages we couldn't buy enough bread to feed all these people Jesus got a big church there's a bunch of people there and he knows church folk get hungry on Sunday afternoon when he's preached too long Philip said if we had all the money from our whole year we couldn't feed we could not meet this need. We could not obtain this miracle. We could not get this healing. We could not have our breakthrough. We could not see our deliverance. We could not walk in our blessing. If we had all of these things, it wouldn't be enough. So Jesus says in verse 9. Or here's what Philip says. Now get ready. Get ready because somebody's about to shout. Here's a boy with... Five, what kind of barley loaves? Big fat, big, 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 big steaming vessel, a truckload of barley loaves. What kind of barley loaves did he have? 
small barley loaves and two what kind of fish? We got a big problem and all we got is small answers. But how many of you know that God uses small things that you give to Him and turns it around and makes it more than enough? My God. This is Ephesians 3.20 lived out in real time. That God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you ask or think. There are things that you cannot in your right mind fathom can ever work. I don't see how this marriage could ever work. I don't see how this ministry could work. I don't see how my prayers can work. I don't see how you could use me, God. I have been a failure. I've backslid too many times. I have relapsed on my drug addiction too many times. I keep measuring my Myself. I have failed you. I have let you down. I don't know how you can ever use me, but if God can just get you to give him one small part of yourself, God can take it and multiply it and multiply it, and there is a big blessing coming to somebody. Stand to your feet with me this morning all over the building because he wants you to know that he was aware of how small you were before he ever called you. As a matter of fact, here's what he wants me to tell you. What you've been calling big, God calls small. Here's the stuff that keeps you up at night. God says, I got that. Here's the stuff that's wanting to, that you are about to let you, make you quit. Jesus said, I got that. Here's the stuff that you have wrung your hands about, cussed about, threw temper tantrums about, almost lost your mind over. It's right there on tip. It is so small. Jesus said, I got that. The stuff that's keeping you up at night, I keep trying to work on it, but you keep getting in my way. You keep worrying about it. You keep stressing about it. You keep trying to fix what I call small. What God wants you to know this morning is that small is not your problem. He wants you to go to sleep at night. He wants you to relax. He wants you to quit sweating the little things. Because He wants you to know what is big to you is small to Him. And what you think is unusable, God wants to turn into blessing. He wants you to bring Whatever you have, I can already hear it in my spirit. Pastor, I don't have much to offer. Little is much when God is in it. And he wants you right now. I'm done. I'm not going to preach anymore. He wants you right now. Bring what little you got left. And God.
God is about to perform a miracle with them. He's not asking you to get another degree. He's not asking you to get another training. He's not asking you to memorize more scripture. He said, whatever you got, I'll take it and I'll use it. It, it, it might be five little loaves and five little fish and it's not much in your eyes, but to me, it's a miracle. It is a miracle in the making. What you have is enough for me to work with. But he wants you to bring it up here. So don't wait on me. I'm done. I'm done preaching. If you, if you need a miracle in your life, but you have been feeling unworthy, you have been feeling like you don't deserve it, you have been feeling like you have messed up too many times, you have been feeling like you have exhausted God's grace, he wants you to know that there's no such thing. He's got grace that abounds and abounds and abounds. And he wants to take what little you offer him today, and he wants to turn it into a miracle. Oh, there's a miracle in the room. My God, my God, my God, my God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Prayer team, if you would get up here and help. I didn't finish, but I'm going to quit. My God, my God, my God, my God.